0: Just by way of introduction tonight, we're going to talk about two topics Um, in the book that we've been going through, uh, 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith. We're going to talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit and sanctification. And uh, before we get into that, I just want to uh, briefly look at Ephesians chapter 4. This is not on the screen. If you have your Bible, uh, turn there, and we'll be turning to a lot of passages um, tonight like we do every week. Um, Most of them will be on the screen, some of them will not be, so just kind of be ready. But in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians is a great book, you know, our pastor preached through it not that long ago. Uh, Ephesians 4 marks a transition in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul spends talking about Christian doctrine. And so, you see stuff, uh, you know, chapter 2 that has all this great stuff about salvation being by grace, through faith, and not of works, so that no one can boast. And he gets to chapter 4, and he starts chapter 4, verse 1, with the word, therefore. He said, I therefore, meaning everything that I've talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3 comes to bear on what I'm about to say in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Because chapters 4, 5, and 6 is where he goes from talking about doctrine to talking about practice. Talking about what we believe to talking about how we live. And that's really the whole point, is Christian conduct follows from Christian doctrine. The reason why we do classes like this, the reason why uh, our pastor or whoever stands up in the pulpit preaches the way that they do, is not because we just want to fill your mind with a bunch of facts. We don't want to just make you Bible scholars. We want to make you more and more like Christ. And so it's the doctrine that we teach that affects the way that we live our lives. And so here, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he's going to list some of the things um, that goes into that. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Tonight, as we talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit and we talk about sanctification, you'll see uh, how these couple verses that we just read affect the conversation that we're going to have. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that the entrance of your word uh, brings light. And so I pray that you would enlighten our eyes that you would uh, remove distractions from our minds, that you would uh, unstop our ears tonight, that we would hear from you, and that as a result of being here and hearing your word, that we would be more like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first page of the many pages of notes that you have is on the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So you see the summary there at the top of the page when God saves a person through Jesus Christ, one of Christ's mighty saving acts is to baptize this new Christian with the Holy Spirit, thereby incorporating her into Christ's body, the church. So what we're talking about when we talk about baptism with the Holy Spirit is is not something uh, mystical. Um, It's not something uh, fantastic. It's fantastic in the sense that Christ does it at the moment of regeneration, at the moment of conversion, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Bible uh, tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, which I think is on the screen for you, but just very simply, he says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So he's saying it doesn't matter whether you were a Jew, whether you were a Greek, whether you were slave or free. We, were, we have all been baptized into one body with the Spirit. This happens instantaneously. It happens at the moment of conversion. There's another thing in the Bible that we read, and it's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now that's something that happens uh, repeatedly. And uh, the Bible talks about this in uh, numerous places, but Ephesians chapter 5 is a good one because it's very clear. It just says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about what that looks like. Filling with the Spirit happens repeatedly. Baptism with the Spirit happens one time at conversion. But what about the book of Acts? If you're familiar with Acts, which is also a book that we've gone through as a church, there are a couple places in Acts that might cause you to question. So uh, one of those places is uh, Acts chapter 1. So this is Jesus speaking in Acts chapter 1, and he's speaking um, to the disciples, and he's saying uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now so it kinda of makes it sound like this is a two-part event where there's you know, these disciples who are believers who have been saved and then at some point in the future they're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit uh, keep that in mind and go to Acts chapter 10 if you remember the story of Peter and Cornelius remember Peter was the great leader of the church right and he's there in Joppa and he's on the roof and he's hungry and he sees this vision that happens three times of this sheet being brought down from heaven and it's filled with all manner of, of animals. And a voice comes to Peter and he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he goes, well, no, that's ridiculous. You know I've never eaten anything like this. And the voice says, "What well, God calls clean. Why do you call unclean? And this happens three times. And, and right after this happens, some men come, some Gentiles come from Cornelius, uh, who has has sent for Peter. He's been told by God to send for Peter. Peter goes with the men, goes to Cornelius, and it's God showing Peter that the Holy Spirit, that salvation is not just for the Jews. Salvation is for everyone. And so in Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 44, Peter is... Preaching the gospel there in Cornelius's house. And it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So both of these passages would kind of lead you to, to kind of wonder about the first point that we talked about with baptism with the Holy Spirit being a one-time instantaneous event that happens at conversion. But what I'd say is, uh, you gotta remember what was happening in the book of Acts. This is the very beginning of the church. The church was in its infancy stages. The biblical canon hadn't been completed yet, and so we always gotta be careful about lifting something up out of this period and then saying well this is normative this is how it always should be this is how it is always going to happen this is how it's always going to look because this is a unique and unprecedented and unrepeated time in history right here so a couple errors uh, to avoid one that we just talked about is trying to uh, lift certain passages out of the scripture and then say that they're normative for practice uh, another one is just neglecting it you know as you I guess, can kind of sense already this, this could be a difficult topic, right? And so some people might just say, well, let's just not talk about it at all, but that would obviously be a problem because this is part of the thing that happens at conversion. And so we don't want to avoid talking about it. Another error would be tying it to a sacrament or, or maybe we might call it an ordinance. In other words, saying you uh, become a Christian at conversion But when you are baptized, then you are, like, baptized physically, actually, under the water, you are then baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you're a Christian at one point, but then when you take the Lord's Supper, then that's what baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, We would disagree with with both of those um, viewpoints. And then the last one basically just says, you know, if you elevate it to such a way that some people are going to say, well, you know, you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you haven't. And it's a way of really dividing the church body, creating disunity. It sort of creates this two classes of Christians. So, like, what kind of Christian are you? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit, or have you not? Um, And I think the Bible's pretty clear that every Christian, as the passage says that we uh, started out by reading, every Christian has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to enact this doctrine? I think very simply, uh, we thank Jesus for incorporating us into his body through baptism with the Spirit. If you're here tonight and you are a Gentile, you should be thankful that God has included us into his plan of, of redemption. Okay, so that's baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's sort of uh, almost like introductory to what we're going to be talking about tonight because sanctification is going to occupy the, the rest of our time. And sanctification is a word uh, that you've probably heard a, a lot. Maybe you've heard it in context of justification, right? They're, they're often linked together as they should be, justification and sanctification. Uh, but tonight we're going to talk about sanctification. So you see the definition there at the top of the page. Most of the time, we're going to talk about the different aspects of sanctification, but most of the time, when someone refers to sanctification, they're talking about progressive sanctification. So specifically, progressive sanctification is the cooperative work of God and Christians. You see that? Cooperative work of God and Christians by which ongoing transformation into greater Christ-likeness occurs. And just very simply... Uh, sanctification is God's will for your life you know I think a lot of times especially like when you're coming out of high school or coming out of college it's the big question right like what is God's will for my life what am I going to do and usually what we mean when we say that is what college am I going to go to what major am I going to study you know you talk about what spouse to marry, what house to buy. There's all these things. Uh, the Bible says very simply, very succinctly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It's a good verse for you to know or just write down, um, where Paul's writing to the church there in Thessalonica, and he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is God's will for your life. So what we're talking about tonight is huge, because it affects all of us, and it affects our our very lives. So the first point, uh, we're going to contrast a couple things. Um, And you see, there's there's some big, unfamiliar words here. Monergism versus synergism. So those are the first two. Let's just stop there for a second. What we mean when we're talking about monergism, right? Something that God does on his own. So When you think about that theologically, you think about justification, right? God is the one who justifies sinners. There's nothing that you do to make yourself worthy, to put yourself in a position to receive that. The Bible says very clearly that you were dead and God made you alive. So dead people don't contribute anything to their salvation. Synergism, though, is this picture of God, just like the definition said, of God and the believer... Working together. Um, Let's read. uh, There's a couple passages of scripture that talk about this. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is the first one. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're like, wait a minute, what, what's he talking about here? You start to get a little scared. Is he talking about like working for your salvation? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but you got to keep going. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here in verse 12, he says, look, you need to work out your salvation. And then in verse 13, like almost in the same breath, he goes, but you know what? It's God working in you, you're working. It's God enabling you to work. God is empowering you to do the work that you need to do. Uh, Another spot that you see that is in uh, Colossians chapter 1. And I love this passage. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. I don't think I had this on the screen. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You know, if you know Paul's story, Paul was a guy, he was like the energizer bunny, right? Like, he never stopped moving. He never stopped traveling. He was always working and sharing the gospel and writing, you know, more than half the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was a worker, and he's saying, for this I toil. And you get this idea, you know, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, uh, he was stoned. Paul had pretty much everything terrible that, that could happen to somebody happened to Paul. And so he's saying, for this I toil, I labor, I sweat, struggling with not all my energy, he says struggling with all of his energy that he works in me. I think it's a great picture of what we're talking about when we talk about synergism of God and the believer working together. But we also see a contrast between um, a legal statement and a transformative one. So what we mean by that is uh, a lot of times when you hear a pastor or teacher talk about justification, they'll say something like justification is, is a forensic term, right? It comes to us from the courts. So we come before the judge and it's, It's more than just the, uh, if you grew up maybe with the just as if I'd never sinned, right? It's more than that because it's not just like God forgives your sin or forgets your sin. No, instead, all of your sin has been judged. But it's been judged on Christ. And then when God looks at you as you stand before the judge, he doesn't see the sin that you've committed, he sees Christ's perfect life that's why when we talk about what Christ did for us it's important that we don't just say well the gospel is Jesus died and was buried and rose again because what earned that righteousness before the father is the life that Jesus lived always obeying the father never committing a sin so when we stand before God we are clothed with Christ's righteousness and so it's the righteousness of Christ that God sees that's justification and that's a legal statement where at one minute we are under condemnation and the very next minute we are free right it's a change in our status we're not guilty we're now righteous Uh, but this statement sanctification is more of a transformative one it's not it's not your status has just been changed but no our, our nature our old nature, the Bible says, has been replaced, right? We've been given a new heart but then even Paul will like, acknowledge, like, well why is it that like the things that I want to do I don't do, and then the things that I don't want to do, I do. So, you know, even, I think it's so encouraging that a guy like Paul could could write something like that and I think he wrote it because every single Christian can identify with that, right? We've all been there. That's because while we do have a new nature, it's It's a new nature that gradually is being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about sanctification, where our desires gradually are becoming more and more uh, transformed. So let's talk about what we uh, believe about this. We're going to talk about a couple different aspects of sanctification. One is uh, positional. So, in, you know, I talked about it being transformative. But there is a sense in which sanctification is positional in that as soon as you receive Christ as Savior, as soon as you have been awakened to the gospel, you are sanctified. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians and in the introduction to this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. If you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians... That church was really messed up, right? Like, there was some bad stuff happening there. And he's writing to this church, and this is what he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's writing to these people who clearly were not, acting like saints, they didn't have their act together, they weren't the perfect church, they weren't even an almost perfect church, but he's saying, I'm writing to you church who are sanctified, because in a sense, as soon as they received Christ, they've been sanctified, they've been set apart, but as we talked about, sanctification is progressive as well. So that's what we're going to look at uh, next. Not just positional sanctification, but also uh, progressive sanctification. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And you remember what's happening here. Uh, Paul is writing to his uh, protege, Timothy. And he's giving him all these instructions. Timothy was a young guy, and he was leading this church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, he says, he says this. Practice these things immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So I'm so encouraged by the word progress because that means, like, progress sort of implies that you're not going to get everything right on the first time, right? Aren't you glad that God gives us room to make progress, that he doesn't beat us over the head with a hammer Every time we don't do everything exactly the way that he wants us to do. He wants us to progress. And that's what we see uh, in sanctification. Another spot uh, that illustrates that is in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. I don't think this one's on the screen either. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we saw Paul writing to the church in Corinth there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to say, hey, I'm writing to you sanctified people. Now we hear in Hebrews, he's saying those who are being sanctified. You see the, the progressive nature of this? In one sense, you are. In another sense, you are still being sanctified, and you will continue to be sanctified until Jesus calls us home. But it's important that we understand These are justification and sanctification. These are inseparable, right? There has never been a person that has been justified that will not also be sanctified. It's all part of the process. You can't have one without the other. And then you see positional, progressive, and then perfected sanctification. And basically that just means when Jesus calls us home. In heaven, we will be perfect. We will not be perfect before then. The person sitting next to you will not be perfect before then either. We will be perfect in heaven. Um, Okay, so we said this is a synergistic thing, right? God working and the believer working. So let's look at uh, what is God's role in sanctification. Um, And and there are more, so don't think that this is like some exhaustive list. But uh, here's a couple important ones. So the divine role in sanctification, uh, first of all, we could say, uh, is conviction of sin. So you see that in John 16, verse 7, where Jesus is talking, he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming, and he says, uh, nevertheless, verse 7, John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, and righteousness, and judgment. We see uh, the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin. Um, You also see in 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, that that God not only convicts us of sin, but he gives us the ability to resist sin. 2 Peter, I'm looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. And I was, I was looking at the verse like, man, that is not at all what I thought it said. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So His divine power granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If there's something in your life where you just feel like, I just can't do that, Peter says, no, you're wrong, because everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness God has given us. Uh, and then the last thing we'll mention is just uh, illumination of Scripture. I don't know if it's something that, you, that you've thought about before, but just the ability to understand Scripture is something that God gives and God does. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse uh, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He says, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of God because they're folly to him, they're foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they are spiritually understood, spiritually discerned. So that's a couple things that God does in this role of sanctification. Now let's look at what we do. And really there's a sense in which uh, one of the roles that we have is is passive, meaning it's it's a posture that we adopt, an attitude that we have. It's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 12 where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So it's this posture of, God, I am a sacrifice. Today, use me. Use me for your glory. So my life is in your hands. So in one sense, it's a passive act. But in another sense, it's active. And God has given us, we read in 2 Peter, God's given us all these tools that pertain to life and godliness, and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of those things that we can actively use. First of all, he's given us scripture. There's a lot of verses that we could use but Psalm 119, verse 11, it's a great verse to memorize. It's two lines. and says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's given us scripture. If you don't ever think on scripture, meditate on scripture, memorize scripture, you are, you are not equipping yourselves with one of the tools that God has given us. I was talking to uh, a guy recently who who lives in this part of town and works in Ballantine, and he's working to uh, memorize Romans chapter 1. And after he gets through Romans chapter 1, he's going to try to do Romans chapter 2. But he's like, man, I'm in the car every morning for so long, I can really work on that scripture memory. So, memorize scripture. That's one of the active things that we can do in our sanctification. Another one is prayer. That passage in Philippians is the... The passage that just talks about not being anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to God. It's always encouraging to me that there is not anything going on in my life that I can't take to God in prayer. Anything that's going on, uh, we can take to Him. The next one, uh, confession. Uh, there's a mistake on your handout. I apologize. It should say James 5.16, not James 5.17, and James 5, 16 says that we are to confess our sins to one another. Man, what, a, what an easy thing to say. <laughs> what a terribly difficult thing to actually do, right? Um, it's not something that we talk about very much because we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about the sins that we have, uh, but that's one of the tools that God has given us in our, our sanctification. And really, honestly, I think that we haven't really fully uh, tried to attack the sins that we struggle with until we've confessed them to someone other than, other than God. Uh, another tool that God has given us in this is community. In other words, this, the, the church, the brothers and sisters in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul's writing about the body of Christ, which is a great metaphor that you see throughout the Bible as he's talking about believers and the community of faith in, in the local church, a lot of times, refers to it as a body, and he says in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 14, "...so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see what he's talking about here? He's saying that the body, as the body grows together. So it's not not like we have some lone ranger super Christian who's out kind of leading the charge, right? No, it's this community of faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the gospel in me is greater than the gospel in my brother, and the gospel in my brother is greater than the gospel in me. God has given us this great gift of community. And the whole point, it's that iron sharpens iron idea, is that every single one of us in here have blind spots in our lives, right? We have those, we can't see them, that's why they're called blind spots. We have these things in our lives that other people can see. That in love, speaking the truth in love, as Paul just said there in Ephesians, in love you bring them to my attention and I do the same thing for you. Growing in holiness is is not something that we're ever meant to do by ourselves. We're not meant to be the person who goes out into the desert and sits and prays all day. No, we're, we're meant to live our lives and grow into Christian maturity in the body of faith. Honestly, we talked about the importance of scripture. That was the very first thing that, that we did under our role in sanctification. But honestly, it's a whole lot easier to read your Bible every day than it is to practice love for the people in your life that really just annoy you like crazy, right? It's a whole lot easier to sit and read your Bible than it is to actually be patient with the people that drive you crazy. Or to practice kindness when really all you want to come out is is anger. Uh, Even, you think about the Great Commission. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, he wrote this great little book called Whole in Our Holiness, uh, talking about this topic, sanctification. And he says, we don't take the Great Commission seriously if we don't help each other grow in obedience. Why do you think he would say that? Let's think about the Great Commission for a minute. So, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? To observe, or that word could be translated obey, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So the Great Commission is not just this, this task of Yes, we, we share the gospel. Yes, that, that's part of it. Part of the Great Commission is teaching them to observe and obey everything that the Lord has commanded. Another thing that we do is resist sin. James 4.7 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Uh, and then fleeing temptation. First Corinthians, you see the, the passage there. Okay, so we've talked about God's role in sanctification, we've talked about our role, both passive and active in sanctification. Let's talk about this, um, this great doctrine of union with Christ for a minute. And there's a lot more that we could say about this. Um, but just very simply, you know, the call in Scripture is not to not to become something that we're not, but, but rather to increasingly become really who we are in Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, Jesus, the message of the gospel, the, the message that Jesus proclaimed was not, you know, relax, you were, you were born this way, that's just the way you are. No, the message of Jesus was, I've got great news, you've been reborn. You've been reborn into, into another way. Uh, we sing a song uh, here, uh, called I Am Who You Say I Am. And the point of that song is, is what I'm trying to talk about here. Who we are in Christ. That song talks about the fact that, that we are chosen, that we're not forsaken. There are some times where you're going to feel forsaken, but you're, you're not forsaken. That song talks about the fact that God is for you. What a great thing to just meditate on. The fact that God is for you. Over 200 times in Paul's letters in the New Testament, we see him use these different phrases, either like, in Christ, or in the Lord, or in Him. It's something that Paul talked about a lot. Maybe one of the verses that we might quote around here just as much, if not more than any other, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says, For our sake, He, meaning God, made Him, meaning Jesus, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Did you see the in him there? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians said, our life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a great, great picture. Uh, It's one of the most important Christian doctrines. Uh, We are found in in Christ. We're just going to run through a couple of these. There there are a lot more that we could say. We are found in Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We are preserved in Christ. That great verse at the very end of Romans chapter 8 where he says, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, powers, he says anything, present, things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We walk in Christ, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. We labor in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where we know that in the Lord our labor is not vain. We obey in Christ, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Parents, you probably need to know that verse. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We die in Christ, Revelations 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord but we also live in Christ Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ Paul says it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and then lastly we hope in Christ Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 Christ in you the hope of glory so much that we can say about what it means to be united with Christ and so much that goes into this conversation that we're having right now about sanctification. So, a couple things to avoid when we talk about this doctrine overemphasizing the divine role. We talked about how this is a synergistic work, right? So, one error is overemphasizing the divine role. So, this is not like a let go and let God. I'm just going to sit back here, relax, and be sanctified. So, that would be one error. Another error would be the, the opposite side, right? Where we overemphasize our role. But you know what? That just leads to despair or legalism. You, you become like the Pharisees, right? Who had all of their I's dotted, all their T's crossed. They had the law down. But Jesus would look at them and say, you're like, you're like whitewashed tombs. Like you look so clean from the outside, but in, inside you're full of death and death. Destruction, it leads to despair because all of us are going to realize that we, we can't live up to that standard. Another error is that um, we can say, well, you know, we're saved, we're justified by grace through faith, but we're sanctified by good works and human effort. And I hope that, that you've heard enough already tonight that you recognize the, the problem With that, right? Paul says, Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? He's saying, look, this work that God began in you is a work that he began by his Spirit, and it's not going to be accomplished by you trying to follow uh, the law. We're saved by grace, through faith, for a life of good works. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Look there with me. So right after the the two verses, if you know any verses in the book of Ephesians, it's probably Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we're saved for something. We're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. Another error uh, that we can make when we talk about sanctification is uh, just dismissing it. Dismissing the importance of progressing in Christ-likeness as part of our salvation. But you know what? Uh, And... And if you're around here for any length of time, I think if you sit through any sermons, you'll probably hear the pastor talk about that, right? But, man, that is so, so dangerous. You know, at the moment of salvation, you're a Christian. At the moment of salvation, something actually happened, right? We talked about how our status was changed, how we have this new nature, a new heart, a new desires that, that progressively we're becoming more and more like Christ, something actually happened. You know, if I came in here tonight and I started off, maybe I looked a little disheveled. And I started off by saying, you know, I'm sorry, I look this way, but as I was walking on the sidewalk here, uh, an 18-wheeler jumped the curb and actually ran over me. So it's been, it's been rough. I made it in here. I'm just a couple minutes late. I look a little beat up. Well, no, I wouldn't be talking like that because you know if that happened, if some, something actually would happen there, and it would not be me standing up here teaching, it would be me dying. Um, <laughs> maybe that's not the best <laughs> the best uh, illustration, but uh, the new birth has noticeable effects. Like salvation does something in us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen, and we all. Every single one of us, we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Every one of us that are in Christ are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. This is the danger of uh, holding to the idea. Now listen to me before you call me crazy or a heretic, right? Uh, the danger of just saying, well, you know, once saved, always saved, right? Meaning, at some point back there, there was a decision made, and never at any point in these intervening 20 or 30 or 40 years has there been any mark that something actually happened here. So we we believe that anyone who's truly saved will always be saved, but we also believe that that there are some some false conversions too. Um, Colossians chapter three is a good uh, spot for us to look at when we talk about this. Colossians chapter three, and he's writing about this, this new life in Christ. So he's saying, if you've been raised in Christ, if that actually happened, then there are some things that now need to happen. One of the things we need to do is we need to put to death some things. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The things that, that are from your old nature. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What are those things? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. But what do we put on instead? Verse 12. So we have put to death certain things. He says, now put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Paul's saying we we put to death these things, and then we put on these other things. So we just we just ask ourselves, what is what's filling our our minds? What are we filling our minds with? What kinds of things come out of our mouths? What are the attitudes that we have? Are are we are we hopeless? Are we angry? Are we irritable? Are we prideful? Are we we envious? Or, Or are we joyful? Are we hopeful? Are we patient, kind, and humble? Are we, are we generous with our, our time and our money? Or are we greedy with those things? What have we put off? What have we put to death? And then what are we putting on? Now, another error that we can make is the error of legalism. The error of saying, all you need to do is these certain things. Here, let me give you a list. Right? We love lists, don't we? And it's because, it makes us feel good, right? If you like, one of those people who, the beginning of every day, you have your like, to-do list. And it always feels good, right? To start scratching things off. Like, here, I am accomplishing stuff today. Or when we go to the store, right? We make a grocery list. Whitney always gets mad because I always end up buying stuff that we weren't planning to have, right? It's like, oh, that that looks good, I'd, I'd like to have some of that. And then, so then I come home with like, way more stuff than I'm supposed to. We like having lists, but, you know, the gospel is not a, a try-harder message. It's not a, here's the list, and if you just do these certain things, you're going to be holy, you're going to be sanctified. That's what it means to be a good Christian, is to follow this list. And that's dangerous. I, I grew up, the church that I grew up in uh, was a church very similar to that, where Where, man, it was, here, don't don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And as long as you don't do that, you're a good Christian. Man, that's so scary. You know, when Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, was, was preaching. And he said, you know what? Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? I mean, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were, like, you can't get better than them, right? Like, they were the men. They did everything. They knew the law inside and out. But Jesus wasn't talking about a better kind of righteousness. He was talking about a different kind of righteousness. Because just a few verses later, that's when he starts his, you know, you've heard it said this. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart committed adultery you've heard it said don't murder but i say to you if you're angry with your brother you've murdered him in your in your heart it was all it was always about the heart jesus would say later that it's out of the heart that come all these things evil speech and evil actions it's out of our hearts the pharisees that's the part that they missed right they were trying to follow a list And some of the times in the conversations that they would have, they would give those lists. They would say, you know, I tithe twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And I fast all these times. And I do this. And I do this. And I never break the Sabbath. And they listed off these lists. And inside, their hearts were dead. And their hearts were cold. Holiness is, it's not less than obeying God's commands. I don't want you to hear that. But it is so much more... Than that, on the opposite side of legalism, you have this this antinomianism idea. Basically, that just means against the law, no law, right? Meaning, there's no rules. Remember that what was that Little Caesars commercial? <laughs> there's no rules. Put your shirt on. There's one rule. Uh, Paul addresses this in Romans chapter six. He he's talking about sin, and he says in Romans chapter six, well, if if God is glorified in covering this sin. Well then maybe we should just just sin and sin extravagantly, right? And he says and in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer comes in the very next verse and he says certainly not. Definitely not. May it never be so. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, James chapter 4 verse 4. And then one last error that we can make we talked about several Uh, this is the error of pride Andrew Murray in his book uh, humility which is a great book he says this there is no pride so dangerous none so subtle and insidious as the pride of holiness There's no pride so dangerous as the pride of holiness the true growth in holiness Uh, makes us more aware of the sin inside of us, more disturbed by the sin inside of us that we struggle with. So I would say maturing believers become more aware of their need for Christ, not really of their growth in virtue. And so if you're sitting here today and you're feeling pretty good, right? Like, I've got this stuff down. Like, I'm reading my Bible, I'm memorizing, I'm doing all this stuff. If you're feeling pretty good, be careful that you're not falling over into pride about your holiness. Because if that's what your holiness is leading you to do, then something is terribly wrong with your idea of holiness. So how do we enact this doctrine? Cooperating with God in sanctification. We've, We've talked a lot about how this is a synergistic work. The work of sanctification won't be done for us. We will have to fight for it. But, like we said, God has enabled us to do that through His Spirit. So we work as He's working in us. And then lastly, making steady progress toward greater Christ-likeness while accounting for divergences from this general pattern. What does that mean? That means that everybody's growth isn't going to look the same. Just like when you look out in your yard, every tree doesn't look the same. Um, some, you know, maybe maybe this is your story. Maybe you're like, you know, ever since I received Christ, I have just steadily grown closer to Him. And man, that's, that's wonderful. That's amazing. Maybe you have a story like, man, I received Christ, and I started out strong. Like, I was going out hard. And then, man, I went through this period where, where I walked away from God, where there was this temporary state of worldliness in me and now I'm, I'm back on track, I'm progressing. Or maybe your story is like, man my growth has been so slow, like frustratingly slow. Like it seems like I'm not, I know I'm growing, but it seems like I'm not growing and just slowly and slowly and slowly, month after month and year after year, you can, you can see how you're getting more and more like Christ. So what I mean is, everybody's journey is going to look different. You remember, um, if you grew up maybe in church, remember the song that we used to sing as kids: uh, "He's still working on me." You remember that, right? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Um, speaking of songs, though, I'd like to close. Um, By reading. We're not going to sing anything, okay? We've already talked about that. There's a a great song that I love uh, called Not In Me. So if you want to look it up later, it's really pretty. The words are wonderful. But let me just tell you a little bit about the song. The song is based on uh, Luke chapter 18. So remember the story in Luke 18 of the two men praying. We have the Pharisee. The Pharisee comes and he says, you know, God... I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he even says, he lists off a couple people and he goes, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And then it says the tax collector's there, and it says he, he won't even look up to heaven, but he, he's like beating his chest, and he just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this song is, is about that story. And it says, no list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues that I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song. No recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him, and He alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give, can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. And so tonight, you know, whether you're sitting here and you're feeling kind of self-righteous, or whether you're sitting here and you're feeling kind of self-loathing and you're beating yourself up, the gospel is is for you. You Hear the words of Jesus when he just said, come to me, all of you who labor, All of you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. the beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of studying it, for the joy of reading so much of it, just letting it wash over us. God, I pray that more and more you would make us people of the word, that more and more you would cause us, to reflect the image of Christ that's inside of us, that you would remove those things from us, bring them to our minds, those things that that we need to put to death, and that by your grace, we would put on those things that honor you. I pray that as we leave here, we would remember that we carry your name wherever we go, and it's in that name we pray. Amen.